Chapter Twenty One of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter Twenty One Among the Old Timers. The winter is coming, and Monty Terrell will have to go to jail so we can take care of him. This remark, which one hears as the summer ends in Fairbanks, gives in a nutshell one of the strange conditions obtaining in the heart of Alaska. This country has no accommodations for vagrants and no laws for the needy poor. There is the Pioneer's Home, it is true, but that is at Sitka, about 2,000 miles from where Monty lives. Monty Terrell is a character. His whole life has been a fight against misfortune, and still, although blind and lame, he is not willing to give up the battle. I do not know his age, but he is long past threescore and ten. Years ago, when he first came to the Klondike, he was one of the most ambitious, determined, and industrious of the sourdoughs, as hardened Alaskans are called. One day, when out trapping, he sank through the ice to his waist. The thermometer was twenty-five degrees below zero, and his legs were so badly frozen that one had to be amputated at the ankle and the other taken off halfway to the knee. Equipped with an artificial leg and feet, he again took up the battle of life. He got about so well on his wooden pins that but few knew of his infirmity, and he obtained a job with a gang working on the Copper River Railroad. He did not want his condition known to his mates in the construction camp for fear he would be fired. But one night, when he had taken off his false feet and laid them beside him in his bunk, the string attached to one of them hung down and tickled the man in the bunk below. The man gave the string a jerk, and the wooden foot came down and kicked him in the face. Monty's lameness was reported to the boss, who discharged him at once. After that, Monty went about working at anything he could get and drifting from camp to camp. Finally, he settled in a cabin on the river Chena, not far from Fairbanks, where for several years he earned a living cutting wood for the steamers. Then his eyesight failed. It was pitiful to see how he tried to keep people from knowing his misfortune. When he heard a man coming, he would straighten up and start to walk about boldly, often running into a tree or a fence. He was offered assistance, but would not take it. At last he was known to be on the verge of starvation and was arrested on a charge of vagrancy and sentenced to jail for the winter, so that the citizens might have a legal right to take care of him. Even then he complained, saying that he wanted to go back to his cabin, and that he knew he could in some way earn enough to care for himself. This story was told to me by Mr. L. T. Irwin, Chief of Police, as well as United States Marshal at Fairbanks. Judge Irwin has the job of keeping order in a district half again as large as either Germany or France. The district has only 20,000 population, but these are so scattered that 15 deputies are stationed at posts over the whole country from the canadian boundary near eagle to the russian mission on the lower yukon and from the arctic circle to the edge of the kuskokwim region here in alaska marshals and their deputies have to refer almost everything to washington before they can act when a crime is committed not a cent can be spent to detect the criminal without authority from the attorney general five or six thousand miles away not long ago a terrible murder was committed just outside the city. No one knew who was the murderer, and it was important to scour the neighborhood and begin the work of investigation at once. Before he could proceed, the marshal had to send this cable to Washington. 
Attorney General, Washington, D.C. Woman foully murdered last night along the railroad track within five miles of Fairbanks. Authority requested to pay expense of office deputies and make investigations in the surrounding country. Signed, United States Marshal. It was days before authority was granted. In the Yukon Territory, the Canadian Mounted Police would have been on the job before the murdered woman grew cold, and the arrest would have been made almost immediately. Judge Irwin has had considerable experience in Canada, having mined gold in the Klondike before he came here. I asked him whether they did not do these things better there. His reply was characteristic. Yes, they skin us a mile. When the mounted police have no law, they make one, settling small offenses out of court. It is said that no murderer of the Yukon Territory has ever escaped. The wheels of justice are badly clogged by Washington red tape. I have before me a copy of the Alaska Dispatch, giving a list of 25 murders which have occurred within the last decade, whose perpetrators were not hung, shot, or brought to judgment. The paper says that the criminals in every case could have been convicted if the marshals had been allowed sufficient funds for securing the evidence. It gives the details in a number of cases and among other stories, tells of two prospectors murdered in the Chandler. The body of one of them, a man named Smith, was unearthed and brought to Fairbanks by the marshal on a dog sled. The government at Washington objected to paying the expenses of the dog team and refused to allow any funds with which to make a search for the body of the partner or to investigate the murder. I asked the marshal about crime in this part of Alaska. He replied, the territory is supposed to be full of bad men, but that is a mistake. The order here is much better than in the southern states where I was reared. You cannot pick up a Georgia newspaper even now without finding in it a report of one or more shooting a phrase. In the last 11 years, I know of only one man killed in Alaska with a pistol. There are but few people in the country who carry weapons. The murders that have been committed have been perpetrated with guns, clubs, and knives. Our people are as law-abiding as any people of the world. Burglary is almost unknown. I lived in Fairbanks eight years before I locked my door. The people will not stand for robberies. We have our strikes, but there is no bloodshed and no destruction of property. Our people are charitable. As an instance of the generosity of Fairbanks, continued Marshal Irwin, take the San Francisco earthquake. The news of it was telegraphed here one Saturday. There was a meeting that night at Eagle Hall, and by noon the next day, $20,000 had been collected and started on its way to the sufferers. A month later, there was a fire in Fairbanks, which destroyed almost the whole town. The people outside remembered what we had done for San Francisco and offers of help poured in. They were all refused, the mayor sending this message. We thank you all, but we can carry our own skillet and don't need any help. It is surprising that there is not more crime in Fairbanks. The city is in the heart of the wilds and surrounded by mining camps that have produced millions in gold dust and nuggets. At times, the banks have been crammed with gold, and in the camps are the bags of gold washed out at every cleanup. Gold is often kept in cans and other common receptacles in the log cabins, and I have not yet seen a house that could not easily be broken into and robbed. Millions of dollars worth of gold is annually carried out on the steamers going down the Tanana and up the Yukon to Whitehorse. The present method of transporting this treasure is in an old-fashioned iron safe 
with handles on each side. The safe is left out in the open under the decks, merely chained to the mast. In the past, the gold was kept in a strong room, and now and then thefts were attempted. One day, a sailor unscrewed the bars of the room and got out a box of dust and nuggets worth $13,000. He and his partner in the crime tied a life preserver to the box and threw it overboard. Thinking the life preserver would act as a float and enable them to find the box when they came back later on. At the next stop, one of the men dropped into the water, swam to the bank, and went back up the river to look for the gold, but could not find it. A little later, the officers of the steamer found that the strong room had been tampered with and that one of the boxes was missing. They caught the criminals who were tried and sent to the penitentiary. The life preserver was afterward found by an Indian but the box of gold is still in the Yukon. On another steamer, a man named Miller came all the way from the outside to steal a big shipment of gold. He got a job as night watchman, and one night, when the boat was tied up at the wharf, he succeeded in getting $40,000 in dust from the strong box, putting buckshot in its place. Before he could return the treasure chest, two half-drunken men came aboard and stumbled over the little safe which Miller had brought out on deck. Realizing what it was, they dropped it over the side in the darkness and then buried it in the woods on shore. Next morning, one of them, frightened over his share in the robbery, told the steamship people what he had done and helped them recover the strong box. But when it was opened, it was found to contain, of course, only the buckshot Miller had substituted for the gold. Miller was convicted of the original theft through his purchase of the buckshot and served a sentence in the penitentiary, but the gold was never recovered, and it is supposed he succeeded in getting it safely to the outside. Though Fairbanks has long since become a settled community, without much of the lawlessness usually associated with mining camps, many of the picturesque features of the earlier days are still to be found here. One is the habit of nicknames. Everyone calls his fellow by his first name or a nickname and Mr. is almost unknown. One character here is generally known as the man who talked the crow to death. This is a miner who talks so much that his fellows have time and again left him in disgust. One day they left a raven sitting on the fence outside his cabin. As the story goes, the man addressed his conversation to the raven and talked to it until at last the bird dropped dead. Another man is known as short and dirty. Others are skookum bill, and sourdough bill and the malamute kid noted for his fine malamute dogs the bear kid is a husky fellow who got the title by wrestling with a tame black bear before an admiring crowd while the hungry kid is said to be able to eat at any and all times and never to refuse a meal one very thin man is called the evaporated kid his friends say that he is a human string bean with the bean left out Edom up Frank owns a cabin on the Tanana River between Fort Gibbon and Fairbanks, where he has a little potato farm. He is called Edom up because when he gets drunk, which is often, he shouts that he can eat up any man in the crowd. He weighs only one hundred pounds. Step and a half Johnson has one leg shorter than the other. Nevertheless, he is fond of racing and can get over the ground faster than the average sprinter. He is said to insist that the racetrack be along the side of a hill where the slope gives his short leg the advantage. Another striking character is Two-Step Louie, who got his title during the gold rush at Dawson. 
he was a successful miner and a nightly frequenter of the dance halls the usual charge was a dollar a dance the man being expected to treat his partner at the end the story is told how two-step louis once sold a claim for five thousand dollars with the understanding that fifteen hundred dollars was to be paid in alamander left chips each chip being good for one dance it is said he would sometimes come into the dance halls and pin a one hundred dollar note to the curtain over the orchestra telling the men to give the crowd a century's worth of turkey in the straw the musicians would play two or three dances and then take down the note these tales are vouched for by the people of fairbanks but i am beginning to doubt whether all the stories i hear in alaska are true i have just been told about a miner at white river who had his toes frozen so that his feet sloughed off to the instep the man had his toes amputated and was able to walk on the stubs with the aid of a pair of bear's feet made into moccasins the bear's claws taking the place of his toes the man who told me this showed me a photograph of the miner with his bare feet tied on the people here say that alaska is as free of snakes as was ireland after the advent of st patrick they claim that the only snake that ever came into the territory was one brought from the outside several years ago in a bale of timothy hay the snake arrived on the edge of water crawled out of the bale when the thermometer was about forty degrees below zero and immediately froze solid it was a long snake and in freezing the head bent over so that it looked like a cane an indian chief picked it up and used it for a walking stick all that winter he is even said to be using it still he buries it in the ice under the moss as the spring comes on and when the thermometer falls brings it out as a prop for his declining years and then the fish stories judge wickersham of fairbanks tells me of a lake near the headwaters of the tanana river where he often goes for sport in the summer the water is as clear as crystal and looking down over the side of the boat he can see hundreds of fish swimming about he picks those out he wishes to catch dropping his bait in front of only the best and pulling it away when a small fish or one of the wrong variety might swallow it as i remember he could catch a boatload in an hour but on account of this careful selection and his desire for sport he takes rather longer it is also said that when the women of fairbanks go fishing instead of dropping the flies on the water they hold them at the edge of the line some distance above it and wager as to who can make the trout jump the highest the loser has to treat the crowd to a luncheon End of chapter 21